0: Good morning, everyone. As Nick said, we're going to continue our series that we've called Temple Talks uh, in the Gospel of Mark. What's going on in this series is um, Jesus is teaching in the temple, and those who oppose him and have been uh, coming to Jesus and publicly asking him questions, not as seekers, but as testers. Uh, They're seeking to feel out or even trap Jesus uh, because they are against him. You may remember that this whole happening begins with an event in the temple. When Jesus arrives in Jerusalem and he comes into the temple the next day and he drives out the money changers and he overturns temples and he declares that his father's house is to be a house of prayer, but they had turned it into a den of thieves. He makes an authoritative, even prophetic statement about the inappropriateness of the religious leader's behavior in the temple. And so they're on the offense, uh, pushing back against him. Um, And so this morning, after uh, after conversation, following conversation, where people have challenged Jesus, we see a new component this morning. And ultimately, the man who comes and asks this question is not diametrically opposed to Jesus, although he probably was moments before this. Someone who's gathered there with the enemies against Jesus is intrigued by the way Jesus handles himself, interested by Jesus's answers. And so he comes as a questioner, not asking to trap Jesus, but actually interested in hearing his opinions. And it's important to remember Um, that of the religious leaders of the Jews, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, uh, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders that were kind of the Jewish court of law for their religion, um, not every single one was diametrically opposed to Jesus. Consider Nicodemus, right, who comes to Jesus late at night because he knows there's more to Jesus than meets the eye. And in John chapter 3, he comes and he wants to know, how it is that you enter into the kingdom of God that Jesus is talking about. And Nicodemus becomes kind of a quiet follower and he's there after Jesus' death and along with Joseph of Arimathea comes, gathers the body of Jesus and brings it to be buried. So he has uh, people in the margins of these high places that are with him and potentially we encounter one of those this morning. Before we read here, the question he wants to know is one that is most significant In his Jewish way of putting things, he wants to know what commandment is greatest. But I think for us, we can think of it in a different way. What is God's primary ask? What is the thing that he wants of us? What is most significant? If there was one answer to what it is God is asking us to do, how would we answer? That's the question that is put to Jesus this morning. And we'll see uh, that as he answers... Uh, There is no division. There is no weighing between two opinions. He gives, as he always does, an incredibly direct answer. Instantly, without thinking, knows exactly what the answer is and drills down and dials in. And so if you have a Bible this morning, you're going to want to turn to the Gospel of Mark chapter 12. If you didn't bring a Bible this morning, in the back of the pew in front of you, you'll find one that you can use. Uh, Mark can be found in the New Testament, but if you use the index right in the first few pages of the Bible, it'll help you navigate to the Gospel of Mark chapter 12. Go ahead and turn there. Let's read Matthew 12, beginning in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he, Jesus, answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You've truly said that he is one, and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, is to, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Let's pray. Mark chapter 12. uh, Mark. I may have said that I meant Mark chapter 12 let's pray. Father, we ask for your help this morning. I pray first and foremost that you would make the question that the seeker asks significant for us, that we would lean in and that we would listen and we would really want to know what is the greatest commandment? Why is the greatest commandment? I pray, Lord, that you would instruct us in your word right now, that you would teach us and that we would have understanding, as this scribe did, uh, that Jesus says was wise. Thank you, Lord, for your word and for this time to sit beneath it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're told here that the man who comes and asks Jesus this question is a scribe. Uh, what that means is that he is a, not just a student of the Old Testament, but that he is a practiced interpreter of the Old Testament law. In the narrow and minute issues of religious practice in Judaism, the scribes are the ones who would come in as referees and explain the depths of these things. They were well acquainted not just with the Old Testament scriptures themselves, but with the thousand-year history of interpreting These passages, the teachings of this rabbi and that rabbi. They're the type of people who love to sit around and discuss what a particular passage actually means. And so it's no surprising here that the question he brings uh, is a question about how to understand the Old Testament law. What he wants to know is of all the commandments given, by god which one is most important of all now interestingly grammatically here his question there when he says which commandment is the most most important of all that word all it, it doesn't match the gender grammatically of commandment it's neutral in other words he's not asking which of the commandments should we elevate he's saying which commandment is most significant of all of our lives of everything okay? He's saying, what is the one thing? That's what he's asking. And as I mentioned to you, when Jesus answers, he doesn't ponder, he doesn't stop to think, he just rolls off and reiterates, and he begins at a very familiar place from a Jewish mindset. He begins with Deuteronomy chapter 6, what even to this day is known as the Shema, and is usually recited daily, by practicing Jews. Even today, this is considered to be the beginning of God's revelation to Israel of who he is and who they are to be out of Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's the Shema, okay? Recited daily by the Jews. And then the following commandment is, uh, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then notice, Jesus doesn't stop there. He begins in Deuteronomy chapter 6. He begins at the Shema, and he says, the number one commandment is to love the Lord your God. And then he keeps going, and he says, the second is this. Now, I don't think he's just giving a bonus commentary here. As we'll see, he sees these two things to be interconnected. Uh, But this next one isn't found in Deuteronomy, but in the book of Leviticus chapter 19. And he chooses these two verses, And elevates them to being the most important, the most significant, the center of what God asks of us and what we should be about. He says in verse 31, the second is this, you should love your neighbor as yourself. And then he explains, there is no other commandment greater than these. You know, in another one of the Gospels, he has the same conversation it puts a little bit differently. He says, the whole law hangs from these two commands. So if you were to think of everything God asks in the Old Testament like a mobile, right one that you would hang over uh, you know, a, a cradle or a crib, at the very top, bearing all the weight of the others, the ones that if you cut, everything would fall down, are these two commands. And ultimately, they're summed up just in this one word, love. Okay. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Here he says, there are no commandments greater than these. This is the center. This is the core. Now, as we'll see, the scribe is struck by this answer. It resonates with him. In fact, he agrees with it. And he says something that interests Jesus. But I want to just stop here and I want you to just recognize here. That when we answer the question, what is God asking of you? What is the one thing that he wants? It begins with your love for him. I honestly think we don't always weigh the significance of this. You know, Christianity has been around a long time. It shaped a good deal of American culture. And so this idea of the, the elevation and the significance of love, I think is something we all resonate with. I've met people who say, Love is my religion. That's not an original thought. That's a Jesus thought, okay? It goes back to this place. It really begins here. But have you ever stopped and think about it? And if you say, What is it that God wants of you? What is He most after? What does He even require of you? It's that you would love Him. That's what He's after. That's what he's interested in. And then related to that is the second commandment, that we would love one another. Here it says, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, even if you go back and you read Leviticus 19, that's not talking merely about the person who lives to the left or to the right of you. Okay. Even in Leviticus 19, that applies to uh, resident aliens, those who were not Jewish and were just passing through the line. Uh, through the land it is a broad commandment but jesus takes it even further in the gospels you may remember on another occasion jesus is asked about the commandments and love your neighbor as yourself is resonated and the questioner says but who is my neighbor how big is that circle of people i need to love And Jesus tells the famous parable of the Good Samaritan, right? This man who is jumped by thieves and left for dead. And a non-Jewish person uh, from a group that the Jews didn't respect or honor or have any dealings with sees this dying Jewish man and goes above and beyond to help him. And in doing so, at the end of it, he says, which of these men... Because other had passed by, a priest had gone by, a Levite had gone by, a Pharisee had gone by and left the man for dead. Which of these men was a neighbor to the dying man? He changes the question. Instead of who should be my neighbor, it's who am I being a neighbor to? But in doing so, he also broadens it out. In fact, that's not all. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls us not just to love our family, or our friends, or our neighbors, or those who share our nation, but even to love our enemies, those who hate us, those who spitefully use us. In other words, we can read love your neighbor simply as being love everybody. It's tremendously broad. But I want to spend some time focusing on why Jesus elevates these ones, okay? And the first thing I want to draw your attention to is the fact that love is elevated here, made central, made first, because it is is preeminent, okay? What I mean is that it is possible to do other things and leave this one thing undone. It is possible to obey God and not love him. It is possible to do the right thing, but not out of a heart or a spirit or an attitude of love. In fact, many people, their experience with God and what he wants of them is primarily doing what's required to keep God at a distance. I'm going to do what's asked of me. I'm going to tick all the boxes so that God will leave me alone. Or sometimes it's experienced or expressed as fear. I need to keep these commands because if I don't, God will bring about these consequences, these punishments, etc. But do you see how you can have those attitudes and not fulfill what Jesus says is most primary and most important here? In fact, notice how... Uh, preeminent this is, he says, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, okay? That word all there is everything. And when he lists these different categories, it can be a little bit difficult to parse. What does he mean here when he says with all of your soul versus with all of your heart? Okay? Okay? But interestingly enough, here Jesus does something that that I think gives us a little bit of understanding. If you go back and read Deuteronomy chapter 6, it's, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. In fact, you can see that in the the scribe, right? He he almost politely here corrects Jesus. Look at what he says in verse uh, 33, and to love him with all heart and with all understanding and with all strength. You see how he leaves mind off the list? What I would suggest to you is by Jesus adding with all mind, he's just pushing out in a whole nother direction. Not one that was lacking from Deuteronomy, but one that at the very least demands more of us. What I would suggest is if you take these four dimensions together, there's nothing untouched. The depths of your heart, that's where your will is, your volition, your decision-making. All of your mind Jesus doesn't call for those who want to please God to just check their mind at the door. Very clearly here, there's a deep intellectual love. Every facet of your mind employed to love God well. With all of your soul, okay? This is the depths of emotions. It's not an objective as opposed to a subjective love. It's not merely... uh, not merely doctrinal or mental. It's absorbed in the emotions. It's the difference between admiration and adoration. Even that, isn't that striking? God's number one thing he wants of your life is not merely that you would praise him, that you would hold him as being the best or the greatest or the most perfect or even the most beautiful, but that you would love him. Jonathan Edwards rightly said, there's a difference between knowing that honey is sweet and tasting it. When it says here, love God with all your soul, that's the taste of love. It's a feeling. And then when he adds, with all of your strength, when are you done loving God? When have you loved him enough? When it's all left on the field. Right? When there's not an ounce left, not an ounce wasted. When we put these four things together, what else do you have time for in life? Where else can you hold reserves and say, Okay, I've given God what he needs, now this is for other things. It's all. It's preeminent. It's comprehensive. This is why Paul says, If you speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love... This is why he says if you give your body to be burned and every dollar from your pocket but have not love, it is very possible to feel self-satisfied and self-righteous and like we've accomplished everything God asks of us and to not actually have met the only thing he wants, which is your love. But not only are these things preeminent, but they're also comprehensive, okay? What I mean is that in doing one, you get the other thrown in. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. Realize that that can't be reversed, nor should I remind you that you can't say that to your children, okay? The idea is not obedience, uh, it's not that uh, love and obedience are somehow mutually or... um, uh, exactly the same thing it's not obedience equals love no in fact we couldn't reverse it Jesus can't say if you obey me you must love me because as we've already seen and as we already know in our human relationships and even our relationship with God it is possible to obey and fall short of love but it is impossible to love God and not have that overflow into obedience to rightly appreciate and understand who God is, to respond with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is nothing short of surrender. Have you ever thought about the fact that romantically we tie those ideas together? The idea of love and surrender? It is a nerve-wracking thing for an anxious and independent people like us. But we still betray that connection when we sing about love, when we express it on screen or in poetry. But ultimately and totally, God calls for full and complete surrender. It's comprehensive. But this is also true with love your neighbor as yourself. In your Bible, if you just turn a few books further into the New Testament, past the Gospels and the early church history of the book of Acts to the book of Romans... I want you to notice Paul's commentary here in Romans chapter 13. Sometimes we make a division. We make a distinction between the words of Jesus and the rest of the New Testament. And we forget that the people who write the rest of the New Testament are Jesus' first and primary disciples. It is amazing how much they're basically just repeating and explaining or deepening what Jesus said. We'll see that extensively this morning. But notice Paul's words here in Romans chapter 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. What do you owe your neighbor? What is your debt to society? Paul says just one thing, love. But notice why he can say that. He says because the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment, okay, so he draws from the Ten Commandments there, and he says, but all of them, any other commandment, are summed up in this word, you should love your neighbor as yourself. Now, where did Paul get that idea? He got it from Jesus. He's just reiterating, this is the first and primary commandment, but he explains here Verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So again, you can seek to respect your neighbor and fall short of what you owe him. You can seek to not rob your neighbor and fall short of what you owe him. And this is the truth. Most of the time, for most people in the world, we just try and avoid doing bad things to other people. Well, I'm, I'm a good neighbor. I've never murdered any of my neighbors, okay? Despite the temptation after they mowed the lawn at 6 a.m., right? But I'm a good neighbor because I've never, you know, harmed or hurt. But here, love is not near, merely expressed in the negative, right? Your absence may sometimes be loving, okay? I remind people often that it is a loving act not to have sex with everybody, that the exclusivity of sex in God's design is actually a way to love your neighbor as yourself, okay? Now aside from unpacking that right now, um, what I want to draw your attention to is again that if you just seek to be a good neighbor and you describe that short of love, then you fall short of what Jesus says here, and so love is comprehensive. If you seek to love your neighbor, then you will fulfill the law, and you will avoid both the commandments that call you not to do things as well as fulfill the responsibilities you're called to do. In fact, think of the metric that Leviticus and Jesus use. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay. Now, the idea here is not one about esteeming your neighbor as you have self-esteem, because not all of us have that. But all of us want what's best for us. All of us naturally take care of our needs. All of us naturally work towards our best interest. Okay. Love your neighbor as yourself basically just says, want, pursue, chase after the same thing for those people around you. But again, it has to stem from, it has to flow from, it has to be fully expressed, fully orbed in this reality of love. Okay. And so, love is preeminent here. We can uh, do other things and leave this one undone. It's comprehensive. When we do this, all of it comes with it. Okay? Love explains the faux totality. But there's another part here. We need to understand that these two commands are connected. I told you earlier that I didn't think Jesus was providing bonus material here. Why does he give us two commandments? Why doesn't he add a third? He gives us two because the two really are one. They go together. I'll show you what I mean. Um, Again, in your New Testament, this time from the book of Galatians, which is just further, a little bit further from the book of Romans... After the letters to the Corinthians, you hit Galatians. If you hit Ephesians, dial back. He's exhorting Christians here, people who follow Jesus, and he says in Galatians 5, verse 13, he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. One word. The whole law is fulfilled and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I think we would all agree that if you find a way to do this and leave the first half, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, there's still some law left. But Paul very confidently says here, if you love your neighbor as yourself, you fulfill the whole law. There's only two options here. Either Paul has modified Jesus' teaching and he says, actually, loving God isn't that important, which doesn't fit the rest of his teaching, or somehow he sees these two so significantly interconnected that evoking one inherently evokes the other. And Paul's not the only one who seems to have this instinct. All the way near the end of your New Testament, we have John's letters. John, who is no doubt standing in the temple listening to Jesus teach these things. And this is what he says. He says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he's seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. John says, you can't fulfill one and leave the other undone. You can feel like you fulfill one and leave the other undone. You can say, well, at the very least, I've loved God and I love him so well that I have nothing left for other people. He says, "Uh uh-uh, there's a connection here. And, And it's not necessarily an intuitive connection, is it? He just points out that the people around you, if you can't even love them, how could you truly love the one you haven't seen? But it's more than that. His point is here that there's a connection between these two things, that if you rightly and fully love God, then you will love those whom God loves. If you rightly and fully love God, then you'll love everyone whom he has made in his image. You see, all the way back in Genesis, it says that humankind innately and inherently, each of you as individuals, bears the mark of God himself, the image of God. That's why CS Lewis says you've never met a mere human being. The way that you treat one another is innately reflection of the way that you treat God. And if you read the Bible closely, you'll see that this is why God constantly gauges a society by how they treat the least of these. The widow, the fatherless, the foreigner, And what he says is, the way you treat them is the way that you treat me, because I am a father to the fatherless. I am a protector of widows. I am the home for the foreigner. Okay, And so they cannot be disconnected. And this is helpful because it keeps us from two errors. One is some sort of aestheticism that thinks the best way that I can worship and honor God is to get away from all these horrible people to build a shack in the wilderness and devote my every waking hour to his worship. And the other is a humanism that says all that really matters is just how I treat other people. You see, that one I think is a little bit harder for us to get. So let me explain in the words of a a pastor in New York City, Tim Keller. He says, imagine... Imagine that you had a single mother and she invested everything into your future, teaching you how to be a good person, opening up the ways for you, investing in your life. And you devoted yourself as an adult to keeping her every command, but you never called. But you had no relationship. Could you say, But I'm doing everything she asked. What else does she want of me? She wants the relationship. When we distance ourselves from God and say, I'm just going to do what he wants, but I have no interest in relationship with him, we misunderstand what it is that God wants. And there's another problem here. Loving God first and foremost makes us better lovers of other people. Because let me point out some things you are flawed, your perspective is limited. If you just go, well, the best way I can love other people is just to listen to what they want and give it to them, you also have a problem because they are flawed and they are limited. If God is God and if he built the world and designed it to work in a way that moves towards human flourishing, then loving God first and foremost and obeying him first and foremost makes our love of neighbor actually loving. Make sure that it's moving in the right direction. It shapes it. Okay. And so, these two flow into one another. If you seek to rightly love your neighbor, you will eventually dig down into the love of God who made your neighbor. And if you seek to love God, it will eventually express itself in loving the people that he has made. The two are connected. They go together. They flow together. Now, what's really striking about this story is in all of the other accounts that we've read so far, Jesus leaves the audience dumbfounded, and they kind of sheepishly tail between their legs, just kind of walk off. But Jesus here is being asked this question by a scribe who has a valid interest in his answer. And so the dialogue continues. Go back to Mark chapter 12, verse 32. The scribe said to him, you were right, teacher. He says, I agree. You've hit the nail on the head. In all honesty, I think if we just take the time to stop and to think, we agree too. We hear this statement from Jesus and it resonates with us. We go, that's it. That's clearly got to be it. That's got to be the exp- explanation. We jump on the coattails of this scribe and we, we voice with him, You were right, teacher. And he continues, he said, you've truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him and to love him with all the heart and with all understanding and with all the strength and to love one neighbor itself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and the sacrifices. Now hear that statement for what it is. This man is a scribe devoted to the Old Testament law and he's standing in the middle of the temple precincts. Leviticus. Where love your neighbor as yourself is found is also the book that goes on and on about how priests rightly offer the sacrifices in a way that pleases God. And here he says, what you've just said is completely more than all those things. Now some of us are drawn more to loving God through ritual than loving God through relationship. We see this in Israel's history throughout. There's an occasion where Jeremiah is critiquing them because they basically say everything's fine, the temple is standing, the sacrifices are going on, and so this impending doom that you keep mentioning, this judgment for our sins, Jeremiah, how could that be? And Jeremiah reminds them of what Isaiah says, this people profess me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They go through the religious motions, they tick all the boxes, but there's no love in it. And here the man rightly gets it and he reiterates what Hosea and what Jeremiah and many of the Old Testament prophets or even David. Sacrifices and offerings you have not required of me, O God. He nails this same thing but in doing so, in doing so, he says something that catches Jesus' attention. Because again, this is a first century Jewish scribe standing in the midst of the temple where the sacrifices are going on, the very heart Of Israel's religion and I want you to notice how Jesus responds to it verse 34 when Jesus saw he answered wisely he said to him you are not far from the kingdom of God now two things there one Jesus rightly commends this person for understanding what he just taught and for putting it in the right priority but he also doesn't say you have entered the kingdom of God You know, if we were to take not far and put it in a positive sense, we would say he's near the kingdom of God. But there's a difference between near and in. And the question becomes, what's lacking? He's got the right answer. He agrees with Jesus. Is it merely just that he sees what he needs to do but hasn't done it yet? Is that all there is to it? Remember that Jesus' primary ministry of preaching is focused on this idea of the kingdom of God. In fact, the very first thing he says in the Gospel of Mark is repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. Okay? The active mover in the story of Jesus is not us moving towards the kingdom, but the kingdom moving towards us. But he knows that this one's gotten so close, like a magnet, you know, to a piece of metal, that it's, it's moving. He sees the motion, but he's not yet in. And here's the problem if we reduce this down to love is our religion, Jesus says you've gotten real near the kingdom of God. But proximity is not the same as citizenship. Standing in the gateway of the kingdom is not the same as being a part of the kingdom. So what's left? What's missing here? Remember that Jesus didn't come And he's not standing in the temple here to explain better the law that Jews had already been given and said, you've just misunderstood it. You've got a priority problem. Just adjust this and everything will be fine. No, earlier in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus says, I'm heading to Jerusalem not to teach the right way, not to reprioritize the religion. He says, I'm heading to Jerusalem to die. The kingdom of God doesn't come through our achieving these things but what Jesus achieved I love the words of Martin Luther he says Jesus didn't come as another Moses in fact he continues he says he didn't come as a lawgiver at all but a law keeper he came not to explain the law but to live it out perfectly not just to embody it as an example and say do as I do but in our place, substitutionarily, sacrificially. And see, here's the thing. To receive who God is and worship him rightly, we have to be rightly connected to Jesus. Just read the Gospel of John. He says, anyone who doesn't receive me has not received the Father. There's a connection point. There's a mediation in Jesus that connects us with the Father. Going back to the Gospel of John or uh, to John's letters, I think he makes it the clearest. Right where we were just reading, this is what he says. Sorry, I kept one too many verses in my head. This one, I lost the reference. Give me just a second. I'm going to paraphrase instead, but I promise you it's there. John says this This is love, not that we have loved God, but that He has loved us and sent His only Son to be the propitiation for our sins. If our world is built around our love for God and our love for our neighbor, then we become the center of the story. And the hero or if we're seeing things rightly we discover in ourselves a complete inability to do that to the fullness of this command you notice Jesus doesn't pull any punches when he lays this out if anything he doesn't restrain it and say hey look I know you're not going to achieve this fully but this is the trajectory he actually widens it out he adds and with all your mind right For us to rightly love God, for us to rightly love neighbor, we first have to own up to the fact that we have not rightly done either. That we regularly and consistently elevate ourselves above God or elevate other things and love them more, that we regularly or consistently put ourselves first. We're not bad at loving ourselves, but love your neighbor as yourself is a struggle. It's a challenge. God sent Jesus to set those things right, and ultimately, the story of the cross is not merely a story of shame or a story of sin or even a story of judgment and of God's holiness, although it is all those things primarily. It is a story of love. This is what John says in another place in 1 John chapter 3. He says, by this we know love. In the biblical definition, when you open up the biblical dictionary and you turn to love, he says, this is what it looks like. He says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, our love for God is shaped by the fact that he is lovable, perfect, loving, true. But God's love for us is shaped by the fact that he is a lover. It's part of his character. While we were sinners, while we were the enemies of God, Romans says that Christ died for us. And when you receive that love, when you enter into that love, when it becomes the defining characteristic of your life, it reorients these commandments to being your priority and it also enables you to fulfill them. Okay. Because a lot of the reasons that we love other people poorly is because we're trying to take care of ourselves. It's because we're focused on getting what we need. But if we have everything available in Christ Jesus, if we're already seated in the heavenly places, if there's nothing in our lives that can separate the one thing that we need, Paul says, neither death, nor powers, nor principalities, nor sword, nor famine, nor things to come, nor things that are, nothing can separate us from the love of God. If that is settled, if that is stable, then suddenly you're free to love others, even in sacrificial and dangerous ways, free to love your enemy, knowing that the worst thing they can do is take your life, but not your eternal life. Free to love God fully and freely because you see that he's so much more, not just some sort of judge in the sky with arms crossed, calling for your demanding, uh, demanding your obedience, but a loving father who not only made you to love you, But loves you so much that even when we walked our own way, even when we rebelled against him, loved us enough to enter into the story, live the life we couldn't live, die the death that we deserve, and invite us back into the family at his expense. I'm fine with the phrase, love is my religion. As long as remember that the heart of that is the fact that God is love. And not just objectively Not just uh, sentimentally, but love as demonstrated in a brutal death on our behalf. Until you receive that love, until you recognize yourself as a sinner in need of saving and you respond to not just Jesus' teaching, but Jesus' death, you can get very near to the kingdom of heaven, but you have not yet entered in. I mentioned at the beginning Nicodemus. Nicodemus' big pressing question as someone who's devoted his life to honoring and obeying God as a Pharisee is how can one enter into the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, unless you were born again, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. There are no naturalized citizens in the kingdom of heaven. You can't earn your citizenship meritoriously you can't get an honorary degree in the church. All you can receive is the gift of citizenship in the new birth, the one that baptism represents. When we say, God, I cannot do what you ask, even though I believe it is good. Thank you that you're so good, you did what I could not do in sending your son. Now, through him, in the power of your Holy Spirit, make me good. That is the orientation of the Christian life. That is the center. That's why these commandments are elevated because, again, God doesn't just require our love. He's worthy of it. Let's pray. This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to die in our place. God, we thank you for that gift. You don't just describe a good and flourishing life, a life of love, but you actively loved those who push against it. You made criminals your family. You adopted us as rebels. You took your enemies and made us your children. And that makes our whole heart, our whole soul, our whole mind, our whole strength worth laying down in love for you because we're no longer caught in the rat race of achievement even religious achievement it frees us up to love our neighbor not because we respect them not because they're so great not because they believe like we do lord but because you love them and sent your son to die for them just as you did us and the only reason we have standing in our relationship with you is because of what you've done on our behalf and that is open and available to all who would come For this scribe and the Sadducees who challenged you last week and the Pharisees the week before and the widow who comes next week with her might and the despised and rejected and the well thought of and respectable, Lord, all of them, you stand inviting them into this love. For those of us who are Christians today, Lord, I pray that you would help us to receive this love afresh, anew today. And that with it, we would enter into the good calling of the greatest commandment to love you and love our neighbor as ourselves. For those who are not yet Christian here, Lord, I lift them up and I ask that they would see your goodness, not just manifested in your desire to know them and that you would have a relationship with them, but in the fact that you actually took a skin in the game way to deal with that and said, look, I will pay the cost of entry. I will bear the burden of your sins. I will freely forgive and not just make you part of my kingdom, but adopt you into my family. All you have to do is receive it. I pray, Lord, that you would lead them to do just that. And if you're not a Christian this morning and you'd like to respond in that way, it doesn't take a lot of ritual. It just, it just requires the ABCs affirm what the Bible says about you is true, that you're a sinner in need of saving. B, believe that Jesus came and died in your place and offers you salvation. And C, commit to following him, surrendering to him as Lord and Savior. You can do that right now, right where you sit. For all of us, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love, the gift of life that you've given us, just the fact that we are created and breathing, Lord, is a manifestation of your goodness. I pray, Lord, that as we go, your love would be shed abroad in our hearts, that it would spill into our relationships with one another, all the way out to those who we might call our enemies, and that it would...